tonight's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, verses, or chapter 26, verse 26 through 39. <clears throat> now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is the reading of God's word. Good to see everybody uh, here today. Um, hopefully you're staying safe through the pandemic. And um, I was out with the virus. Uh, it wasn't really that bad, but um, you know, everyone's so touchy about it. I just want to keep my distance. You know, I got a scarlet letter A now. You know, people don't want to come near me, even though I tested yesterday, so I'm negative. So if I sound a little hoarse, it's not the virus. It's, it's just a cold, right? Um, Thank you, Joanne, for reading scripture. Um, I think that's the first time I heard that, so this is encouraging. Anyways, <clears throat> so what I've decided to do uh, starting today, and, and actually, um, I'm just gonna, I just wanna talk about something very basic and, and, and very fundamental, you know, um, to our faith and to Christianity. And um, what we're eventually gonna do is spend some time in Genesis chapter three and, and look, at, look at what happens there and talk about um, why we need salvation, why we needed a Jesus Christ and, and um, what this issue of sin is. And because you know, and one of the reasons is this, I mean, I don't know what you think about what the word sin um, for the world, what they think about it, but it, it's the reason for why Christ came to this world, right? This issue of sin. And if you grew up in church, you, you're used to hearing that word, sin, right? It, it's, it's almost cliche, oh, it's sin, right? And then you, you learn about the gospel, which says that Jesus Christ came down and, and he died for sinners. And, and, you know, maybe that meant really something to you in the very beginning, you heard that, but you, you grow up with that. You go to church and you hear that all the time, you know, that it's sin, it's sin, it's sin. And then the gospel, Jesus died on a cross and Jesus died for me and Jesus died for sin. And, 
And, and what I realized as, as a pastor, even as a pastor, is that those truths, as true as they might be, eventually lose their sort of effect on my life, right? Um, that that I, I tend to just say it, like, oh, yeah, Jesus died for sin. And uh, Jesus died for sinners. And uh, that, that truth, it just rolls off my tongue so quickly and so easily. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you're a believer? Well, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. And, and you know, and a lot of other things. And so uh, it, it, I, I, for me, it just, it just becomes flippant, right? That the truth that someone gave their life for me becomes something uh, just, it's, it's, it's a fact. It's a matter of fact. Yeah, Jesus died for sin. I'm a sinner and everyone's a sinner and that's what he did. This is what I believe and this is what, I'm, what makes me a Christian. And what, what I realized is that those truths that we know many of us or heard many of us uh, become a, an abstract concept or an idea, a theological uh, a premise. And when we start just saying, yeah, you know, I believe Jesus died for my sin, you know, there's something, I think, missing uh, from that confession. It, it's something impersonal now. It, it, the, it comes now not from, from my heart, my personal life, or personal experience. It, it's a theological proposition. It, you know, because think about this. You would never say the way you say about Jesus about anybody who would give their life for you. You know, let's say you're crossing the street and you're going to get run over by a car. But then your neighbor comes and pushes you out of the way. You wouldn't just say, oh, yeah, my neighbor saved my, my, you know, saved my life. And just like flippantly say it, right? He's like, my neighbor gave my life for me. Gave his life for me. You, you, you know, so and, and, and so I realize this is what happens to many of us who grow up or been going to church and hear this message over and over again, what happens is the idea of sin and the concept of salvation becomes just that. And when you start talking like this, when you start thinking like this, you trivialize those ideas, those truths. You start saying things like, you know what, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I know that. I'm a sinner. It's like, what, you know, it's like even the way we say that, you know, it's like there's no guilt. <laughs> I'm a sinner, right? Because, you know, everybody's a sinner, and, and so it doesn't matter that much. And if I can treat an idea or a truth just as a concept or an idea or a proposition, if I could do that, I can remove myself from any real personal responsibility. You know, I could say things like, well, you know what, I, I've got issues. I, I've got problems. But so does he, and, and so does she, and they're actually, I think, bigger than my issues, and in fact, everybody else has these issues, that's just the way it is, because people uh, can stink. And so when I start thinking like this, what happens is, I start talking about Jesus and salvation, and I say things like, yeah, Jesus died for sinners, for all of us, which is absolutely true. But you never say out loud, hardly ever say out loud to other, I'm the issue. I'm the problem. It's always everybody else. It's always everybody's a problem. Oh, society's a problem. Culture's a problem. The world's a problem. Hardly do we ever say it out loud. I stink. I'm the sinner. It's my sin. And so rather than deal with that, we trivialize it. But everybody's a sinner. 
to the extent we downplay or trivialize our own sin and responsibility, we trivialize this gospel. We trivialize the work and the person of this person, Jesus Christ, the cross, the death, his resurrection. To put it another way, let me put it this way. If you're a bit underwhelmed today by the depth of God's grace and love, it might be because you're never personally overwhelmed and amazed by how sinful you really are. Let me start with this question today. What is your deepest problem today? What's your deepest problem? What's your biggest issue right now? And obviously, in the context of this sermon, you know the answer I'm looking for. Well, sin is your deepest problem, right? But let's be honest. Outside of the sermon, outside of the church, outside of this context, you might have a different answer, wouldn't you? I mean, if you're a teenager, you might not say sin was your biggest problem. You, you might say pimples are your biggest problem. You might say perhaps it's your parents that your biggest issue. Maybe it's your siblings. Maybe it's a lack of, of, of money. But you wouldn't say sin. If you're an aging athlete, you might not say sin is your biggest problem. You'd probably say something like old age is your biggest problem because that time is wearing down on your muscles and your strength. You're an employee. What's your biggest problem? It's your boss. It's your coworker. It's not your sin. Husbands, say my wife. Wives, say my husband. Single people, say my biggest problem is if only I had a spouse. My aloneness is my biggest problem. The cancer patient points to disease and the inadequacy of medicine. What is today? What is your biggest problem? Honestly. And I want us to think about this very clearly. The Bible makes it clear. Your deepest problem is you. It's you. Your sin. Your sinfulness. It was, it is, and it will always be your problem. Till you die. You know, in the 19th century, uh, the London Times once asked its readers, quote, what is the greatest problem in the world, end quote. And this famous, famous uh, Scottish novelist by the name of George MacDonald responded to the, the paper and succinctly said, I am sincerely yours, George MacDonald. And I think we need that kind of awareness because here's the thing. If you miss this crucial fact, how big and serious the problem is, then the glories of Christ, the message of Christ and of grace and the, of the love of God, it's not going to seem very glorious to you. It's not going to be very gracious or loving to you. It's not going to seem so wonderful to you. If you don't understand how low you were, you won't appreciate how high God is and where he has brought you up. And so... Uh, we're going to address those issues a little bit in the following weeks, but what I'd like to do is just jump ahead and give you the answer that we all know. It's to remind us again of why this is so important. Here in our passage, we, we've read this passage before. We're at the end of Jesus, towards the end of Jesus' life. It's the Last Supper, right? He's having his last meal with his disciples. 
In our passage from verse 26 to verse 36, there are two scenes. Two scenes. There's one in the upper room where he has the last supper with the disciples, just before he goes to Gethsemane and then dies on the cross, right? He's eating with the disciples. And then, then the second scene in our passage is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is alone. Verse 36. Now, if you like to drink, and I know there's a lot of people in our church who love to drink, especially during these times, this is like a sermon because it's about drinking, okay? Because there are two scenes, one with Jesus and the disciples and one with Jesus in the garden by himself. But in the center of both scenes, there's a cup in the hand. In the first scene, it's in the hand of the Lord Jesus. And he hands this cup to his disciples and he invites them to drink from it. He says, here, take, drink. Right? It's dinner, it's fellowship, it's probably wine, it's good stuff. Here, drink this. And then the second scene, he goes out to the garden in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there is another cup. This one's not a literal one, it's a metaphorical one, but it's a cup in the hands of the Heavenly Father. And the Father is pressing this cup into the hands of Jesus Christ, saying to Jesus, you drink from this cup. And so if you look at these, these verses from verse 26 to verse 36, these two scenes are linked together by these two cups. It's what we call in, in, in seminary an inclusio. It's meant to separate the section. And so these two cups are like the bookends of this passage. And in the middle of this bookend, in the middle of, of, of this passage, is the betrayal of a close friend named Peter and the disciples. So what I want to do today is look at these cups. What do they mean? And what does that have to do with us today? All right? Okay, let's get that first cup. It's the Last Supper, first scene, moments before his betrayal. It's the beginning of his passion. He's about to go to the cross. And so what they're doing here as, as they're having a meal, it's, it's actually a celebration of Passover. Passover. You know what Passover is. It's that practice of, of what they did in the, in the Old Testament where they remember how uh, God spared their lives and, and was going to promise salvation. And so every year they celebrated Passover, looking forward to the promise that God is going to save their lives, spare them from judgment, and give them salvation. And one of the things that they did all the time when they celebrated Passover over a meal was they would sing. And they would sing things like Psalm 116. And in the middle of Psalm 116, there's this verse that goes, what shall I render to the Lord for all his blessings toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. They would sing this every year during Passover. What shall I give to the Lord for all his blessings towards me? I will take the cup of salvation. And here in our scene in the first passage, Jesus is giving them literally a cup, telling them to drink. And if the disciples were a little bit more aware, they should have seen what Jesus was really doing. That he was saying, everything that you've been celebrating at Passover, everything that Psalm 116 was talking about, the promise is now being fulfilled. And how Jesus was going to do that. This is the cup, which is the blood of the new covenant. Drink. How as a suffering servant, he would suffer so that many would receive the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. Okay? 
So these people, year after year, celebrating Passover, remembering God's promises for salvation, singing, what shall I give to the Lord for all his benefits? I will take the cup of salvation. And here Jesus is. He's giving them the cup. Drink, this is my blood. And they should have realized that what they had received in promise only, now they were receiving it in reality. This first cup represents the cup of salvation. It's the cup of blessing. It's the cup of fellowship. And Jesus gives it to them, says, you drink. And he gives it freely. Here, you drink. But interestingly enough, if you look carefully in our passage, although we assume everyone drank, Jesus himself never takes a drink from it. Fast forward to the second scene. And there's a second cup. Verse 36, and, and now we're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and here it's here that God the Father will, in effect, he says to his son, the same thing that Jesus said to the disciples in the first scene. Take this cup and you drink it. But this second cup is different from the first one. Because this cup is not Jesus' cup. This cup is what the Bible calls the cup of wrath. It's not Jesus' cup. It's, it's, it's a cup of judgment. He didn't do anything to deserve this cup. He's done nothing to merit this cup. Everything that is in the second cup is utterly alien from who he is and what he desires in his relationship to his father. And that's why he prays in verse 39. Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Now, what does this cup mean exactly for Jesus to drink this cup? And it means two things. To drink this second cup meant isolation and desolation. That's what it meant for Jesus. Among many things, these are at least two things. Isolation. What do I mean? If you were to read the, the, the part, the, the passion of Christ, you realize there's a progression of isolation that's happening to Jesus. Jesus is in Jerusalem, a big city with all these people. And then the story moves to a house with now just his disciples. It's gotten smaller to have his last meal. And then he leaves that house in towards the Garden of Gethsemane with just three guys, Peter, James, and John. And slowly as the story goes on, the people around Jesus become smaller and smaller and the disciples fall asleep in the garden. And we're told in our passage, verse 39, he himself went alone a little further, and now he's alone. And so the very atmosphere here is one of progressive isolation, and that's where the drama begins. And he says in verse 38, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Think about this. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. He's saying, I am feeling the horror of this moment so strong, I'm not sure I can sustain it physically. In other words, I think Jesus is afraid. Think about this. And as a child, if you were scared of the dark, uh, one way to comfort yourself would kind of creep into your mom or your dad's bed at night, and, and you'd feel safe because mom and dad, they're never scared of anything, it seems, right? Especially of the dark. But if you were a child and you saw your parents, who never seemed to be afraid of anything, actually be afraid of something, how much more scarier would that be? 
And here the Son of God, who could call down legions of angels, walk on water, raise people from the dead, who seemed fearless in life, and now he's on his knees in fear. How bad could it have been? How scary could it have been? Um, as mere human beings, we could never imagine what the scene was like. Only Jesus, as the Son, only he was qualified to face what needed to be faced. Take this cup. And Jesus finds himself isolated. He's alone in a territory with God that no one has ever entered. And it's not just isolation, it's desolation. Right? He falls to the ground, and he's praying in sweat. He's greatly distressed and troubled. You know the verb distress or trouble? It literally means going crazy, verse 38. It's the language of a mind seeking to remain stable under the unthinkable. It's, a, it's the language of a body seeking to function under a burden that's crushing it. Jesus was in agony. Here, let me try to illustrate it this way. You know, there's that TV syndicated program, The World's Strongest Man. And, and what these men do is that they go through a bunch of these physical tests. And there's some enormous pulling competition where they're given this huge rope tied to a couple of buses. And they will actually pull the bus as far as they can to a certain point. I mean, it's crazy, but that's what they do. And these men, they, they train for this. Their whole body and being is put into it. And they pull and they pull and they pull until they just strain and they can't pull anymore, and they're at a standstill. Now, the interesting thing is, I imagine that if most of us here were given that rope, just trying to hold it straight would be difficult enough. But pulling the rope with a couple of buses attached to the end, that sounds impossible. Now, here's the question. If I'm straining just to lift the rope, and those guys are straining, moving a few buses at the end of it, which of us do you think feels most it's the man with the buzz at the end. Not the man who could scarcely lift the rope. And that's how we imagine this whole scene with Jesus. One of the questions that keeps coming to my mind here about Jesus is this. How could he be really tempted if he was so strong and so divine? How could he really struggle if he was really holy and really God? And here you see it. It's because he's entered into such advanced territory, into the obedience to God's will, that his whole being is bursting as the world's holiest man. And he's almost at a standstill. But he's got to go further. There's no comfort. There's no peace for him. He's in a place of hopelessness and desolation. Okay? Isolation all alone. Desolation, hopelessness. That's the darkness he was in. And so there are two cups in our passage. One in the beginning, the other in the end. One is literal, the other one metaphorical. One is of blessing, the other one is of, of curse. Now, in between these two cups, in our passage, in the middle, is the story of disciples, particularly Peter. And when you read in between those, those cups, you read about this Peter and the disciples. And they are making all these promises. Jesus says, you will betray me, Peter. And what does Peter say? No, not me, Jesus. I promise you, if everyone left you and denied you, I will never deny you. 
I promise you, Jesus, I would rather die than leave you. I love you. I will follow you. I will trust and obey you. I will never betray you. And in verse 35, we're told all the other disciples said the same. That's what's in the middle between these two cups. And we know how those promises work out, right? Unkept promises. Broken promises. In the garden. Does that remind you of any other place in the Bible? Broken promise in the garden? Remember the Garden of Eden, which we'll look at next week? The tree of life and, and the tree of good and evil. And God says to Adam, don't eat of that tree, don't eat of that fruit. And, and, and Adam says, why? And, and, and God basically says, because I told you. And he says, why can't I take it? And God says, because you love me. Don't do it because you trust me and you follow me and you obey me. And Adam promises. But Adam in the garden reaches out with Eve and he takes it. And it's an unkept, broken promise. It's betrayal. It was sin. And now here in the Gospel of Matthew, it's no longer a tree and something to eat, but now it's a cup and something to drink. And the Father is saying to Jesus in the garden, because they reached out and took of that tree, I'm saying to you, my son, you reach out and take this cup. But the son says to the father, this cup, father, I don't want it because it's full of isolation. It's full of desolation. And the father says, remember Eden? Remember Adam who failed? Jesus, you are the second Adam. Do what the first Adam failed. Drink this cup because it's my will. Drink this cup because you love me and you trust me and you want to obey me. Even when everything in you says, let this cup pass from me, drink it because my son you love and trust me. The first cup, the cup of salvation, the cup of blessing and forgiveness and fellowship, that belonged to Jesus. He alone is worthy to drink this cup of unblemished fellowship with God. He alone deserved that cup of blessing. His disciples didn't deserve that. Yet he gives it to them and he says, you drink. But the second cup is a cup of wrath. Isolation and desolation from God. Jesus didn't deserve that. Who did? The disciples did. Adam did. Peter did. We did. And Jesus was told by the Father, take it. It's not for you. It's for sinners. For people who break promises. That's why that story of Peter is in the middle between these two cups. For people who break promises. Like the disciples who promised to leave but fail. Like Peter who promised to never forsake but ran. It's for people who, who break promises. Like husbands who promise to love their wives the way Jesus loved the church but fail. It's for people like wives who promise to love their husbands for better or for worse, but fail. It's for parents who promise to love and raise their children the way God, the Father, loved his children, but fail. It's for children who promise to honor and obey their parents in the Lord, but fail. It's for professed Christians who promise to commit to be faithful to the Lord, 
to his church, to his fellowship, to his word, and failed again and again and again. And deep down, you and I both know what you really deserve. But that's why it's in the middle of this passage. These unkept promises in between these two cups, it's deliberately written this way as if to say only, only because of what Jesus did, only because he took the second cup and not the first, is he able to say to the disciples, to Peter, to us, you take this cup cup of life. You drink it. It's the only way. Either Jesus bears the curse for you or you bear it yourself. And Jesus is saying to you, because I have taken the cup of curse, the cup I give to you is the cup of salvation. You know why this place, you know, it's a story, it's called the Last Supper here in Matthew. But it really isn't the Last Supper, right? Every Sunday, every first of the month, we do this Last Supper again every month, right? We receive every Lord's Day, the first of the month, that cup. And we're reminded, death for Jesus, life for us. Isolation for Jesus, fellowship and communion for us. That's the gospel. Now let me just kind of wind this down here. There's a prayer um, written in a book called The Valley of Vision. If you ever read this book, or you know, amazing uh, prayers, and I don't, I don't know anyone who prays like this anymore. But this is one of the prayers, okay? And it, it reads like this: Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, beaten down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, tormented that I might be comforted. Made ashamed that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. Bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem. Bowed his head so that I might uplift mine. Closed his eyes in death that I might live forever. O Father who spared not thine only son, that thou might spare me. Help me to adore thee by lips and life. Can you pray like that today? Do you ever think like this? Do you ever feel this? How are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, Jesus died for me and he died for the sinners. Because here's the thing. Only until we understand and believe and trust this for me. For me. Not, not for everybody else. Not for everyone else. For me. And the depths of my sin then will I be brought to the heights of God's love. And then will I be able to sing genuinely, not just lip sync, but genuinely sing songs like this. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. 
For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, Jesus, tis now. And I pray our hearts would be open to the truth of that gospel message, genuinely and deeply from our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your grace, your patience, your love. Um, many times, um, especially in our church, many of us are very cerebral, and when it comes to thinking about our faith, we, we, we think um, maybe intellectually or theologically, some of us, and uh, those things are, are wonderful and important, and, and they're great. Um, but many times there's a disconnect from from our life and from our from our what you call our heart, our whole being. Um, we go through the motions because we say we believe a system of truth, but um, we wonder sometimes has those truths penetrated deep enough in order that we respond genuinely to the horribleness of our sin but to the wonderful grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I believe, God, that if you save people, um, there is something different. It's not always visible. It's not, it's not, may not always be, you know, obvious, but, but Lord, that there is something different, not just in our understanding, in our brains, but in our hearts, in our lives, in the way we work and think and, and live and, and, um, it's not that we are more morally righteous or become more, you know, better rule keepers. But, Lord, as we strive to obey, Lord, we, we recognize grace upon grace and forgiveness upon forgiveness. There's humility. Uh, there, there's, there's compassion and there's empathy and, and, and there's love. Um, there's, there's no judgment. There's, there's no hate. There's no anger. And there's, there's got to be something, Father, that... that that, that you have done because of these truths. And we go to church every Sunday, uh, whether on home or in person, and we hear these things over and again, and we say, oh, I know this already, I know. But, Lord, uh, do we really know? I mean, do we really, God, have you, are you growing us? Are you, are you working in our hearts and, and as well as our minds? Are you making that connection for us, um, helping us to not do out of duty but out of joy? out of love, out of desire, to be pleasing to you. Um, I, I pray, Lord, if that's lacking, that you would restore that to us as we are brought back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray we don't trivialize that, but we hold it in high regard. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.